So good um, afternoon or whatever time of day it is with you. Today's talk will be called An Ordinary Person's Life. And I'm basing this on a text from the Chan, which is the Chinese way of saying Zen, a patriarch called De Shan. And I'll read this out and then I'll offer some reflections upon it. Deshan entered the hall and addressed the monks, saying, I don't hold to some view about the ancestors. Here there are no ancestors and no Buddhas. Bodhidharma is just an old stinking foreigner. Shakyamuni is a dried up piece of shit. Manjushri and Samantabhadra are dung carriers. What is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. Enlightenment and nirvana are just donkeys tethering posts. The 12 divisions of the scriptural canon are devil's texts, just paper for wiping infected skin boils. The four fruitions and the virtuous states, original mind and the 10 stages, these are just graveyard guarding ghosts. They will never save you. Now, this kind of language is somewhat extreme, but it's certainly not atypical when we come to the writings in the early uh, Chan tradition. Uh, Zen, in fact, is quite well known for its provocative utterances. But because it's Zen Buddhism, because this text is, the one I just read, is part of the canon itself, uh, because we are somewhat conditioned to revere such texts, in fact, I've, I'm obviously setting this text up as having some sort of, of significance, some sort of value. I'm honouring it in some way. And yet, the text itself seems to be going against all of those tendencies. Um, we have, I think, and Zen tradition too, has managed to sanitize uh, this kind of material by establishing it as uh, canonical. But what I'd like to do this afternoon is to actually take the text seriously to try to imagine what might have prompted someone, Dejan in this case, uh, to speak like this. It's perhaps interesting to imagine a situation today when a Buddhist teacher might speak like this. What would happen, for example, if I were invited to some Buddhist conference and there are sitting all of the 
well-known teachers uh, of that land, some Tibetan Rinpoches, some Zen masters, some Theravada bhikkhus, some Ajans, some abbots, all in their fine robes, all taking themselves somewhat seriously, let's say. And if I were to not quote this text, read it out as canonical, but were actually to say what it says, what would be the reaction? If I were to say, as part of my keynote speech, let's say, Shakyamuni Buddha is a dried up piece of shit. If I really said that and meant it, not just citing it as a venerable text of antiquity, what would be the response today? I suspect at the very least, it would be considered to be rather impolite, that the language is not appropriate for a Buddhist gathering, words like shit, for example, and that um, at the very least, it's, uh, it, it, it's highly impolite to look a Buddhist in the eye and say the Buddha is a dried up piece of shit. I think Zen um, loses its power by having become an institutionalized religious tradition, Zen Buddhism. And so when we read these texts, we do so in a way quite differently to how they might first have been heard. We have to remember that at its origin, and this would be the period in which Dejan lived, it's about the 8th, 9th centuries in China, during the Tang period, um, Buddhism underwent a kind of revolution. And leading this re revolution were the monks who came to see themselves as practitioners of Chan or Zen. Remember that the word Zen um, simply means uh, meditation. It comes from the uh, Pali word jhana, the jhanas, the four jhanas, you may have heard of them. And the Chinese word Chan is basically the way the Chinese pronounce the Indian word jhana. So for these first practitioners, they didn't think of themselves as Zen monks with all of the baggage that has accreted to the word Zen in popular Buddhism today. They basically said, we're the ones who meditate. We're the ones who practice jhana, meditation. In contrast to the other uh, parts of the tradition, which were much more concerned at that time with philosophy, with metaphysics, with the study of sacred scriptures, with uh, highly complex uh, psychological and other ideas, many of which have come down to us today. But what happened in China at this period, started perhaps by this legendary figure of Bodhidharma, who we mentioned yesterday, is that Ordinary Chinese people felt that Buddhism was somewhat abstract and aloof, uh, confined to great monasteries, uh, requiring a high degree of literacy and education in order to understand it. And it got to the point where there was too big a gulf between what 
the Buddhist monks were doing on their mountains, in their monasteries, with their texts, and what was actually going on for the ordinary person, the ordinary man, the ordinary woman on the street, as it were. And this led to a break. This led to a kind of rupture where some of the, uh, the monks of that period said, no, we're not going to continue just with this philosophy, this metaphysics. Let's get back to what the Dharma started out as. And what the Dharma started out as was the story of a young man called Gautama who encountered the existential questions of his life, his birth, his sicknesses, his aging, his death. And these became questions for him. These questions he took radically to heart. And he spent six, seven years, however long it was, just struggling with these questions until supposedly on one night under the Bodhi tree, he broke through to some resolution of these questions. I'm not going to say he got the answer to these questions, but he found another way to respond to them. And that is what's constitutive of what we call awakening. So the Chan tradition decided um, to stop speculating and studying all of these magnificent and intellectually compelling answers to the questions of life and death, but it decided to return to those very questions themselves. I think this happens to many of us today as well when we take an interest in Buddhism or maybe some other spiritual tradition that really engages our interest, is that we start out with a degree of authenticity, of uh, passion. We come to the retreat with genuine anxieties about what it means to be human. We maybe feel our life is at some kind of crossroads. And we take this practice with utter seriousness and sincerity. But often what then happens is that it becomes routinized. It becomes another routine. It becomes something which we're more or less comfortable with. We enjoy the rituals uh, of, of med meditating together. We admire the wisdom of the teacher. We like the people we meditate with. We study Zen books. We get to be quite good at doing this kind of meditation. And then we start to realize actually things are getting a bit flat. The practice no longer has that same kind of visceral charge that it might have had when we began. Uh, we've somehow made it routine and normal. Maybe quite satisfying, maybe we enjoy it, but the charge, the oomph, has perhaps been lost. And I think that on a larger historical scale, this is the situation that Dejan is addressing. 
He's addressing the situation of complacency. There's nothing that can not become routine about which we can then be complacent. So even this rather um, uh, extreme passage of Dejan can become routinized. It's just a Zen text. It doesn't shock us anymore. But more importantly, when we engage with this practice, what is this? That too can become routinized. That too can just become another part of our habitual day-to-day -day life. We sit in meditation, we ask ourselves, what is this? But it doesn't really connect so powerfully as it might once have done. So part of the challenge, not only in Zen, but in any contemplative practice, in any spiritual practice, is to try to keep that uh, initial uh, passion alive. We spoke yesterday of how we might understand this as beginner's mind, to keep coming back to the mind of the beginner, rather than leaving our existential anxieties at the door and becoming adept in the practice of Zen. I like to think that by focusing on a question rather than a set of answers or doctrines, we have a tool that can help us keep this question alive. But even so, we must be prepared to keep pushing this question beyond the limits of our comfort zone. This question becomes alive precisely when it makes us feel uncomfortable, precisely when it uh, discloses um, our uncertainties, when it discloses our disquiet, when it discloses our real gut-level fear of dying, of getting old, of catching the coronavirus. And in some ways, this confinement that I think probably all of us are experiencing now is also a space in which we are thrown back um, into uh, a far more honest encounter with ourselves. The whole society is forced to somehow come to terms with with who they are. The, the, the future is now far less certain than it was two months ago. In fact, many of us often think back of, to what it was like at the beginning of January as though it were almost another, another time, another age, another world. Despite ourselves, we've been thrust into a situation of uncertainty of not knowing. And this can bring up all kinds of uh, unsettled feelings. And the practice of what is this is not some kind of cure for dissolving uncomfortable feelings. If anything, it's taking that discomfort, that unease, that anxiety, and channeling it in 
to this core question and allowing our lives, our anxious, worried lives, to become questions for ourselves again. We're all going to die, and it's actually quite unlikely that we will die from COVID-19. But nonetheless, COVID-19 um, wakes us up to the very real uh, threat uh, of life that could come to an end at any moment. We might suddenly have a heart attack or a stroke and we're gone. I suspect many of us are, are not so young anymore. Um, irrespective of coronavirus, we are moment to moment uh, subject to the uh, possibility of our own end. Sometimes the question, what is this, is understood as the question we, we ask when confronted with the great matter of birth and death. If I were to try to summarize what this means in this question, one way of doing so would be to say the great matter of birth and death. That's a, a phrase we find in, in Chinese Buddhism. I think it's a good one. It's very similar too to the question faced by the young Gautama when he started out on his quest. And although we might have all kinds of ideas about what enlightenment is, or what we hope enlightenment to be, I think one way we can uh, start to look at it is to think of enlightenment as basically the, the deepest response we are able to uh, have to the great, great question of life and death. How do we respond to that in a deep, authentic, honest way? And whatever that response might be, your response, as I said yesterday, is not going to be the same as mine or the same as Tony's or the same as Martine's. The real challenge of this practice is to tap deep down into your own existence. Ask this question, well, what is this? and allow the space for a response to emerge. A response that's not just coming from your head, it's not coming from what you know about Zen Buddhism, but it's coming from somewhere deeper than that. And that source, I would argue, is the source of all great art, of literature, of music, of things that we intuitively recognize to be expressions of what humanity is capable of imagining at the very root, at the very core of their human experience. It's at that level that Dejan is posing this pro provocation, let's say. That to stop, therefore, projecting authority back onto those figures we admire in the past. There are no ancestors and no Buddhists, Deshan says. Get rid of all that stuff. Bodhidharma is just a stinking old foreigner. Shakyamuni a dried up piece of shit. What is known as realizing the mystery, and again, he's taking that phrase ironically, realizing the mystery. And I admit that I use that sort of language too, so I'm 
just as much to blame as anyone else, is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. Now, this ordinary person's life is what you are experiencing right now. We're all ordinary persons. The Buddha, Bodhidharma, the Dalai Lama, they're all ordinary persons. We are all biologically identical. Of course, we have different DNA, but basically we're in the same boat. We have the same kind of, we have exactly the same anatomy, the same organs, the same brains. That is the ordinary person's life. We are thrown here into existence without, as far as we know, having planned for it, arranged it, chosen it. One day we wake up and realize, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm conscious. This is the world. And as we waken up to that, we also waken up to its shadow side, which is, and at some point, and I don't know when, I won't be here anymore. I'll die, maybe suddenly, bang, it's over. Or I'll suffer a long and lingering death. We don't know. But at some point, this, all of this, the beauty, the joy, the agony, the pain, uh, the complexity that is uh, of the world that is um, channeled through our senses, all of this will come to a stop. We don't know what will happen afterwards. Maybe nothing, or maybe something we can't even imagine, given the organism we're in now. So this is where what is this is taking us. It's taking us into this kind of deep encounter. And in doing so, Deshan is suggesting we put aside all kinds of religious doctrines, all sorts of Buddhist beliefs. And we try to recover uh, what lies at the heart of the practice itself. Some of you, if you're familiar with my recent writings and, and talks and so on, will be aware that I'm also struggling with some of the classical Buddhist doctrines, particularly the doctrine of the Four Noble Truths. Deshan doesn't mention the Four Noble Truths, but clearly uh, they too would end up as graveyard guarding ghosts or just paper for wiping infected skin boils. The Four Noble Truths also need to be let go of, not held onto as truths, as certainties. There's things we can rely upon. And rather than thinking of Four Noble Truths, it might be more helpful in this sort of practice to think of a series of tasks that we are called upon to engage. And the first of these tasks is to embrace life, to embrace suffering. Rather than thinking, Life is suffering, the first noble truth. Let go of that and instead experience suffering as something that we can embrace. 
what is this is a way of embracing life a way of embracing suffering we're not interested in what this suffering is we're not interested in whether we can get rid of it or not we're interested in being able to start from the ground of saying yes the inescapable nature of this moment just for a few seconds what does that mean for you this moment what does that feel like you feel your body perhaps you might have some aches and pains you might feel very rested you're hearing these words there might be other noises going on in the background your body is filled with emotions and feelings all of that is your life right now that is your ordinary person's life and can we actually open ourselves to that utterly simple but extremely elusive experience we call the present moment what's going on what's beating in our chest what ideas are running through our mind and be able to say yes yes this is my ordinary life and as we saw yesterday with montaigne uh this is something quite astonishing and yet because we're so totally familiar with it it doesn't strike us as astonishing or extraordinary it strikes us as rather dull and banal in embracing life and i think particularly in embracing our life through the question what is this we are bringing ourselves into a new relationship with the ordinariness of our existence we're allowing as it were um something to to cut through the familiarity and to wake up a much more a dynamic and richly felt sense of being the kind of person we are in the moment that is unfolding in the world that is enveloping us so what is this is a practice of embracing life but it's not an embrace in which we arrive at any any knowledge any certainty it provides this tool of inquiry that leads us to recognize in a way uh, that there's something infinite about this life infinite about this moment if we're asked to sort of say what it is very very difficult to pin down exactly what is going on now we try to leave it as a question so in asking what is this what we're working on is to bring that to make that question into a kind of felt sensation what is sometimes called in zen a mass of doubt this mass of doubt is again a very physical uh, image 
it's often described as a feeling that takes place in the belly, in the gut. And as such, it begins to loosen the need for having words when we question. We might start with this phrase, what is this, or who am I? You may have different uh, questions that, as it were, engage you like this. But at a certain point, the conceptual element of the question, the words, starts to become replaced more and more by uh, a sensation of doubt, a, a, a sensation of questioning. And that's where we can let this meditation land, in that sensation. We spoke again about this yesterday with the image of the losing the keys. But this, I think, is very crucial in cultivating this practice, is to find ways of making it embodied. And in doing so, the question, what is this, becomes a, a quality of mind that infuses uh, more and more our day-to-day -day experience. And it does so not by keeping us in a constant state of Zen inquiry, as we might uh, do on the cushion, but it begins, as it were, to, uh, ref to, to resonate through the body and the mind with a kind of curiosity, with a kind of puzzlement, with a kind of wonder of whatever is going on from moment to moment rather than experiencing our life as one boring moment after the other, and then maybe at the end of the day to be, uh, to be stimulated by some radio show or whatever it is, we begin to realise how wondrous it is simply to be here at all, to recover uh, the astonishment at being alive. And there's really no distinction between that deeply felt sense of being astonished at our own, our own existence and the practice of the question, what is this? What is this is just a vocalization of that primary astonishment. Now, of course, you can't just willfully say to yourself, okay, now be astonished. It doesn't work like that. In order to recover this almost childlike sense of astonishment, we have to learn to let go of certain habits of mind, certain attachments, certain fears that prevent us from being astonished. And this brings us to the second of the four tasks. The first task, remember, is to embrace suffering or life, the situation we're in. The second task is to let go of our reactivity. So we find very often in life that when we confront a situation, and that can be another person, it can be 
a work environment, it can be something you're watching on the TV, that we don't do so as just neutral, unaffected observers. We do so as engaged beings. So we're in a situation and two things are going on. The world is being disclosed, is appearing to us. We're hearing things, seeing things, tasting, smelling, touching things. And at the same time, we're reacting to those very things. And some things can actually prompt extremely strong reactions, reactions of hatred, reactions of, of greed, of fear, of lust, of jealousy. And another reaction that we don't often think of as a reaction is the reaction of um, opinion, particularly in conversation or when you hear someone speaking on the TV. Very often you're reacting, not just in terms of I like this, I don't like this, but in terms of that's right, that's wrong. How can they think that? How can they say that? Oh, yes, he's absolutely right. This is a layer of reactivity that engages the conceptual mind, the linguistic mind, and it reinforces um, and strengthens cert certain habits that are coded into our inner monologue. And you probably notice this, but that is just as much a reactivity as is craving and fear and hatred. Arguably, it's a reactive pattern that is all the more uh, problematic because it is so subtle, because it's something that we instinctively think to be right. But once we start seeing this pattern happen, we begin to realize that we hold our sense of self, our sense of me in place by constantly repeating and uh, reinforcing who, the ideas about who we are, about what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. All of these things have their purpose. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But in terms of this practice, they serve as yet another kind of anesthetic. They desensitize us to being open to the sheer weirdness of life. And instead, keep compartmentalizing whatever we experience in terms of some concept, some idea, some theory, some belief. So when we ask, what is this? We're also, as it were, with the sword of Manjushri, the sword of wisdom, cutting through those kinds of habitual inner narratives and opinions. So to let go of opinion, to let go of these kinds of beliefs, some of which were probably unconscious, is very much part of what it means to be able to say, what is this, with complete authenticity and integrity. So I would hope that perhaps in the course of our practice today, uh, that we take on board these dimensions of the practice of what is this. On the one hand, 
letting go of everything we know about Zen, everything we know about Buddhism, and coming back to grab our ordinary person's life. And then to expand this notion of what is this, to think of it as a way of performing a set of tasks, the first of which is to be able to say unconditionally yes to the experience that is happening right now, to embrace that life. And secondly, to also embrace the reactions we have to what's going on, our our opinions, our fears, our thoughts, our desires and so on, and just letting that be rather than affirming them or denying them. We're not trying to suppress anything. We're trying to open our attention so that we're able to hold the totality of this ordinary person's life, which involves simultaneously an embrace, a, a, a yazagen, a saying yes, and at the same time, a kind of release, a letting go, a letting be, not letting these reactive patterns take over and take hold. And in doing so, to thereby open ourselves more radically still to the question of what it means to be the kind of person we are in the kind of world in which we live today. So that's all I have to say. Um, now we have about 20 minutes for any uh, comments or questions that you would like to pose. And once again, we'll be doing this through the chat function. So fire away. In asking what is this, and he's capitalized is, the sense of I is diluted, but this generates a sense of disorientation anxiety for me. Normally, I would bring compassion, kindness to the anxiety, but find it harder because the I isn't there so much to direct, bring forth the compassion. Do I just stay with the anxiety unless it becomes overwhelming? Or how else can the anxiety be eased and help to, ex to access supportive compassion and kindness? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, it's true that in asking what is this, or particularly when we focus that on ourselves in the sense of, you know, who am I? What is this person? Who is me? It's true that that can... Uh, dilute, as you say, uh, a strong sense uh, of me. But I feel there's a big difference between that rather rigid, uh, stuck sense of me, this kind of quasi-permanent sense of being the same person all the time, and that more narrative sense of self, which is processual, which is um, evolving, which is adapting, which is responding. I have a funny feeling that uh, some of what you're saying is carrying uh, the baggage of Buddhism. 
Um, in other words, the, a, a tendency somehow to, um, uh, to be suspicious of any sense of notion of I. Um, but as you say, in weakening this sense of self, we don't lose the sense of self. Arguably, this practice is about uh, seeking to arrive at a sense of who I am that is less preoccupied with being me and is more concerned with responding to the situations at hand. And I admit that there may be periods in this process which, in which we feel anxiety, disorientation, because something that has been familiar to us for so long suddenly seems under threat. And if you find that this uncomfortable feeling, this uh, disorientation is best dealt with by generating compassion or kindness to that, those feelings, then please do that. <clears throat> I'm not suggesting that we only have to do what the teachers are telling us to do. The real skill in meditation is learning to uh, find ways to resolve the complexities of your own lives in ways that is are appropriate to you. But on the other hand, the, one of the things that's, I think, very important in the practice of Zen and in the practice of the Dharma in general is to realize that this is not a picnic. The, this is not some... Uh, psychotherapeutic uh, intervention. But this is really a very radical challenge to everything that we feel and think ourselves to be. So one way of approaching this question would be if, let's say, you feel anxiety, to ask, what is it that feels anxiety? What is it? that feels disoriented. In other words, to take those difficult emotions and to co-opt them into the practice itself, rather than trying to sort of solve them or lessen them or weaken their power, turn them into the question. And if they can become the foci of your meditation, then you have already transformed them. They're not things that upset you so much anymore. They become the vehicle through which this practice continues. Danke für Ihr koaguliert wie die Text sagen in einer Masse von Zweifeln. Thank you for your coagulated how the texts say in a mass of doubt. Yeah, so this is referring to the mass of doubt, which you do find in the classical Zen texts. And um, you use coaguliert, which I suspect is the German for co coagulation. And curiously, that is the way in which our teacher, uh, Kuzan Sunim, also spoke of the mass of doubt. He said it was like, the coagulation of milk, the coagulation of milk. And I think that's kind of a good way of putting it, is that as this uh, sensation of doubt or this mass of perplexity 
um, becomes more uh, more perceptible when you start to notice it more. It is as though uh, something within you begins to somehow take another form, begins to coagulate, begins to solidify. Is falling into is falling asleep in the meditation when I ask the question a form of reactivity? Can be, yes, but it doesn't have to be. I think there are two kinds of sleepiness in meditation. The first one is the fact, it's simply the fact that you're sleepy and you need to rest. And in fact, if we lead busy lives, if we're actually quite stressed out doing stuff, then when we come to meditate, sit quietly, nothing to do, switch off the devices, close our eyes, watch our breath, five minutes later, we're snoring. And this is simply the body saying, at last, I can stop, I can catch up on sleep. Now, if that's the case, then I think the best thing to do is to sleep. It's not very fruitful, I find, to sit in meditation and constantly be fighting drowsiness, constantly dropping your head drops and you get angry with yourself and you get frustrated and you can't if that's the case i think it's probably the body's way of telling you that you need to rest you need to sleep but there's another kind of sleepiness and here i think we get closer to reactivity and that's the sleepiness that feels just the same in many ways you're sitting in meditation and then you keep nodding off but this is the difference. When the bell goes at the end, you're suddenly wide awake. Uh, you say, oh, good, now I can go and have something to eat, something to drink, do whatever I do next, and you're as bright as a button. This suggests that you're not really physically tired, particularly if you have, in fact, been sleeping and resting well. And then you get waves of sleepiness in your meditation. Chances are this is a form of reactivity. This is the way in which you have, this is a way of switching off, a way of, of not uh, having to deal with questions that are actually at some level deeply troubling and disturbing. And we mustn't uh, pretend that meditation uh, cannot be disturbing. In fact, sometimes meditation brings you into some very dark places. Meditation can bring you into spaces where you relive trauma, um, in which uh, you process uh, very painful memories, ideas. So one way in which we somehow escape from that is by nodding off, by going to sleep. So that's all I can really say. Um, Yes and no. I seem to have little or no fear of death. Am I kidding myself? I'm 74. I don't know. Um, in my own case, I've often said that to myself too. I've done all this meditation. I've studied philosophy. Um, I've thought long and hard about the certainty of death and the uncertainty of the time of death and for most of the time I 
I seem quite open to uh, the prospect of dying. And I like to think I've kind of got that under control. But to be honest, I also periodically find myself terrified of death. I find there are moments sometimes that break in unannounced where suddenly I am overwhelmed by the prospect of, of, of not being here at all, of my life simply having stopped. I find that terrifying. Maybe I'm better at dealing with those reactions now than I was in the past. I don't know. But I wonder really as a human organism whether it's even possible to completely transcend this visceral fear of death. Um, so I would not be complacent. But on the other hand, I would wish very much that you have overcome your fear of death. I think that would be a great blessing. Um, and I wouldn't discount it as being impossible. But I would always leave the door open to the fact that there's something uh, within us, uh, this mortality that we carry with us, um, that is constantly able to break in and shock us and surprise us and frighten us. It's a quote from T.S. Eliot. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Yes, uh, this is from one of Eliot's four quartets. I've often read these poems and felt how powerfully they resonate with the kind of practice we're doing here. Uh, Eliot uh, has a wonderful gift in uh, evoking through his poetic imagery and just the rhythm of his poetry, uh, precisely the kinds of experiences that we celebrate in uh, this form of Dharma practice. What if the sensation of great doubt feels like a paralysis, or worse, a threat of extinction that starts to feel like an overwhelming of the body-mind, a feeling of unbearable pain? Well, if this sense becomes too overwhelming, then I would suggest you come back to your breath, you come back to your living and breathing body, you turn your attention to how wonderful it is to be alive at all rather than not, and to try to bring a certain calming quality to this practice. It's true that there are times when this practice feels that it's driving us into a paralysis, to a place where we somehow feel stuck and unable to move. And I think this is also quite deliberate. Um, there's one uh, uh, Zen koan, where the, I think it's actually Deshan again, our, our friend De, Deshan, where he says to, his, uh, he's to one of his students, if you say this, is a table, pointing at a table. If you say this is a table, 
I will give you 30 blows with a stick. If you say this is not a table, I'll give you 30 blows with a stick. What is it? I've often thought about that. In other words, Dejan seems to be driving the student into a corner. Whatever answer you give, you get hit. If it is a table, it's not a table. Either way, you get beaten up. So what is it? Stay with the question there, where all exit routes have been cut off. Is and is not, boom, they're gone. No options left for language, for conventional language. You're called upon to respond in a way that transcends the dichotomy of is and is not, which curiously, is what the Buddha describes as samaditi, right view, which we'll look at a bit tomorrow. So yes, there is a sense where uh, the paralysis can actually be um, a moment in the practice itself that we want to work with. So it's your choice, it's your call. Do you feel that this is so threatening and disturbing that it's not going to be fruitful for you? In which case, I would gently return to the breath, open your eyes, maybe generate some loving kindness, some compassion, as was mentioned before, or stay with it. Stay with the paralysis. Ask yourself, what is it that is paralyzed? Turn it into a question. That, you may find, is very often the most appropriate way to dealing with obstacles in this practice. Co-opt them. You're feeling anxious? Okay, who is anxious? What is anxious? What is this anxiety? Turn it into a question. As long as you leave it as a fact, like threat of extinction or paralysis, you've already kind of empowered it. Turn that fact into a question. And that may be a way to work through it. Martine has already mentioned some books. And this is a book Martine and I published last year. And um, you may find that useful uh, in your own practice of Zazen. This is the transcripts of our retreat at Guy House in 2016. I'm going to have to stop here. Thank you very much. I will see you all again at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.